There are a lot of self-help books out there. Books to help you cook better, exercise better, deal with stress better, and have fantastic sex. Think Like a Freak, a book by Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt, well, that will do none of those things. Basically, I'm transfixed by cause and effect. So when we tell the story about drug dealers and why they live with their moms, that's not, you know, a big unifying theory of everything that, that you're gonna, that's going to make you change your life. But on that point, we feel pretty confident that we've told a story that's maybe interesting and definitely true, perhaps not important. But if you are looking to adapt it to what you're doing, you can operate with some confidence that the reason that this is happening is because we say so. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, and welcome to Telstra Vantage Behind the Mic. These conversations were recorded at Telstra Vantage, an ideas, technology, and business experience focused on insights, inspirations, and innovations. I've been asked to uh, speak with you today about um, problem solving in a business world that's changing faster than ever, all right? So you may naturally say, well, Dubner, what are your qualifications for speaking on this subject? Uh, My qualifications are extraordinarily thin. (laughs) Stephen Dubner has made quite a journey. The first book, Freakonomics, was really just a bunch of stories told from the perspective of an economist. But in recent years, he's become more prescriptive, no longer content to just use his novel way of thinking. He's now trying to get everyone else to start thinking that way. You say in one of your works, the three most important words for people to be able to say is, I don't know. <laughs> yes. you know a great answer to questions, admitting your limitations, understanding things might be a little bit more complex than a binary yes-no divide. Do you feel that any group of people are better at saying, I don't know, than others, men, women, young, old, Western, Eastern, religious, irreligious? Who's got the strength and who's got the real blind spot for I don't know? Well, it's a great question, especially when you break it down into those groups. So a lot of the specific answers to those questions that you asked about those groups, I don't know. I do know that men and women are both pretty bad, uh, but men are a little bit worse. Um, children are certainly... Uh, not immune to it, even though we think of children as being very, you know, their minds open to exploring the world. And that means obviously there's a lot they don't know. Children um, certainly fall prey to it. Western versus Eastern, I don't know. Religious versus non-religious, really interesting. I I also don't know. the. I'd love to know the answers to all those. But the central premise that you stated is the important one, um, which is that it's really hard to solve a problem or to find the true answer to a question if you won't acknowledge that there's a significant portion of it that you don't know. And obviously, this is not binary. Obviously, you know, if, if there's a problem, I may know 20% of uh, a solution. Um, in terms of what kind of people are really good at it, um, I think that's what academia is really good at. Uh, I'm a little biased. Again, a lot of the people that I write about, a lot of my friends are in academia. But if you think about it, you don't really go into research academia in order to just spout some received wisdom or opinion. You go in to try to come up with questions that have not yet been answered. So I feel that's really useful. Um, I do feel a lot of uh, religious and theological people really handle doubt very, very beautifully. Um, A lot of scientists, I mean, I kind of group them in with academics, but a lot of scientists, um, Again, I hate to keep beating up the politicians. If we were looking for a group that are, 
that are that least struggle likely. struggle on you, I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's a real shame because I, as a voter, would be really excited if a candidate were addressed at a, an interview or a debate and said, you know, so-and-so, you know, we've got a big problem these days with X. Maybe it's, you know, tax revenue. Maybe it's crime. Maybe it's a healthcare thing. You know, what should we do? And I would really love them to say, well, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I've talked to a lot of people who have some ideas about it. Some of those ideas actually conflict with one another. And therefore, it's really hard to know what's the right thing to do. So I think that because I don't know the right thing to do, especially off the bat, especially when I'm spending your money, I think what I'd like to do is uh, is acknowledge that I think this is an important problem and that I would like to try to solve it. And I think the best way to solve it is to follow uh, a pattern that we've seen that has worked throughout civilization, which is basically basic science, which is come up with a few different treatment op- opportunities, come up with an experiment. Um, but the key is to do it really small. In other words, rather than take a billion of your dollars and declare this is what we're going to do, let me take you know $10 million and set up four different uh, trials or experiments that each cost $2.5 million and let them each go and see if any of those work on a small scale. Maybe more than one will work. Maybe none will work. And if there's more, one or more that works, then maybe we take that and then we do a little bit more experimenting to say, now, wait a minute, just because it worked small, does that mean it will work large? Let's try to figure that out. And that's the way I would like to solve the problem. But right now, I don't know what's the right answer. I, I would vote for that person. I have a feeling not many other people would, though, which is why I'm uh, not a politician. If I had 100 people randomly selected and ranked them in order of their I don't knowness, yeah. num- person number one just never says I don't know, mm-hmm. person number 100 very open to it. Okay. Do you know where you would sit on that scale? Uh, or by definition, do you not know? I'm <laughs> I'm probably, well, you're right. Literally, I don't know because I need more data to know what other people actually thought. I would, uh, well, also, I do know that most people are wildly overconfident in their own abilities. (laughs) So what I would say- I'm a much better than average driver. I don't know about you. Now, let me say one thing about that, though. When people make fun of the fact that people say that, like you just did, and I've done that too, it is possible- that the majority of people can be above average. Mm. It's a median that we're talking about because it could be that the drivers who are bad are so, 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 so bad. Dragging the rest of us down. Exactly. (laughs) Just want to clarify. But in terms of where I am on the, I don't know, I would- That's why I think I'm a better than average lover too, I should say, (laughs) because I've heard some of the shockers out there are really ruining it for the rest of us. Yeah, I'm not going to address that. Uh, (laughs) But I will say this. I probably, when I first started working with Levitt, I was probably in the, right about in the middle on the saying, I don't know. And I like to think that I've now inched up to the maybe 70 or 80th percentile. Um, and, And it's not out of virtue. It's not because I think it's a good thing to be a good person to say it. I think it's useful because you learn a lot more stuff when you're willing to say, you know, and it's why, you know, my first question to a lot of people that I'm interviewing or meeting They'll tell me they do such and such, and and I'll say, huh, you know, that sounds interesting. Tell me something I don't know about that. Um, I don't want to pretend I'm smarter than I am, and I don't want to ask, a, you know, I don't, I don't want to take the one thing I may know about what they do and say, oh, yeah, like the way you blah, 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 blah. What, what good does that do? That's just showing off. What's a lot better is to say, oh, that, that sounds interesting. Tell me something I don't know, and then I'll learn a little bit. 
The Freakonomics brand is growing. There are four books, a blog, a really spectacular podcast, even a feature-length film. It's an impressive array of content that is reaching millions of people. Your work's been exposed to massive audiences now for over a decade. And on that topic, you said, look, what I'm saying here might be a little bit politically incorrect. You have sometimes stepped into waters that ignite controversy, you know, climate change, link between abortion and crime, et cetera. I don't want to go back and revisit those. Oh, I'm happy to. Those, but what, yeah. I, what I'd rather ask, because people can find online the toing and froing there, which is fascinating, but with 12 years of having done that and, in, and gone into the battles and taken some knocks and won some and lost some, is there a part of you that occasionally these days when your mind wanders onto a certain area, do you self-censor and think, it's probably not even worth looking into that. <laughs> Are you braver now than you were? Do you do you talk just as freely now on stuff as you ever would have? Have things changed? Um, I can't think of a, a topic that we've decided to not write or talk about. Um, some topics are too like ridiculous, but not politically incorrect. And, but that said. It, you know, I mean, honestly, the one topic I tend to stay away from is politics per se. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do is because I hate it so much. And the reason I hate it so much is because it's a rare instance of uh, an arena in which the stakes are very high. Let's not pretend they're not. But you've got all kinds of actors or agents within that arena behaving in ways that have nothing to do with logic or rational mm. behavior. And so I don't really have anything for that. I don't have a secret, uh, you know, I wish, uh, I wish I had something, but, you know, usually, you know, the kind of, uh, article I'll write or podcast I'll make or book chapter, whatever is about trying to use some kind of rational exploration of data and decision-making to say, you know what, the thing that you thought was really good turns out to not be quite as good as you thought, Mm. which means that maybe we should think about doing something a little bit different. In the realm of politics, that kind of reasoning, that kind of logic, it just doesn't, unfortunately, doesn't really have a place. But in answer to your your actual question, that was just a tangent, um, I don't think so. I, I, I do try to be, you know, I think there's a fine line between being a provocateur for the sake of saying, hey, pay attention to me. I've got something to say that's going to upset people, which is what I don't want to be, and saying, you know, uh, I'd like to take a look at this thing that there's a lot of people lined up behind and maybe suggest that you should rethink it. So I, I'm fine with that. And part of it is being a little bit more experienced and learning that when you do that, you need to communicate it in a way that doesn't immediately antagonize those people. Because then it, then you're not trying to win an argument or even present the evidence. Then you're just trying to be the smart aleck who said, ah, you're wrong. I'm a writer by training. That's what I do. And uh, I don't know if you know a lot of writers, but I'll tell you there, there are essentially two qualifications to become a writer. Uh, I am not capable of making or doing anything. And uh, I'm not really employable. But as anyone who thinks like a freak would know, you mentioned uh, to our audience today at the conference that uh, one of the reasons you're not good with your hands is one of the things that drives you towards being a writer. Uh, I think you said that you you can't really make stuff and you're not very good at conventional employment (laughs) patterns. That left you with two choices, writer or criminal. Yeah. How do you think you would have gone as a criminal? What sort of criminal would you have been good at being? So I think I would not have been a terrible criminal mm-hmm. um, because I'm pretty lazy, okay? <laughs> and uh, so as it turns out, this is another theory of mine that is either nuanced or just wrong, but <laughs> I, I do believe that laziness 
maybe that's not quite the right word, but I do believe that laziness is an overlooked attribute in that if you're lazy, you look for really efficient ways to do things. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm fairly industrious in some realms. Like with my writing, I take it seriously. I really, I'll spend 30 seconds thinking about, should that be a semicolon? Or maybe I should go with an M dash and a parenthetical phrase, or maybe I should go with parentheses, but Mm -hmm. wait a minute, I have a parenthetical phrase in the next sentence. Let me go with the M dash, right? I'm pretty, you know. You'll put some work in there. I I care about that, but otherwise I'm, I'm pretty lazy. And so I think the kind of, I think I would have been the kind of criminal that it wouldn't have been a physical thing. I think I might've been fairly good at a certain kind of embezzlement, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was a kid, about 14, I did a minor embezzlement very simple, but profitable. I guess the statute of limitations has run out now. Yeah, yeah. I, was, uh, I was selling tickets to the a high school basketball game, right? And they were paper tickets and there was an adult and a student role, mm-hmm. those big rolls of tickets. And you would give them, uh, someone would pay you, let's say $3 for an adult and $2 for a student, whatever it was. And you would give them, you'd tear off one ticket, you'd tear it in half and give the person, the half to get in and you'd put the other half in the box. That was the receipt. And I quickly realized that if I tore the, uh, I the, see where you the other one, right. If I pocketed the $3, but tore the $2 ticket, that's a nifty $1. Po- so I, so I, every adult you admitted on a student. Correct. Ticket, that was a $1 you were clearing profit. A dollar. Right. Exactly. Which was, uh, now, uh, I, I acknowledge that was not an honest thing to do. Not a good thing to do. Genius. And I would like to say that, uh, I stopped doing things like that. Um, at a certain point, but I'd like to think that I had a little bit of criminal uh, oomph and that I could have scaled up that kind of thing. So I think I could have, and I'm also, uh, but I'm also very, I I, I don't like being a a wrongdoer. I have Mm -hmm. a conscience a little bit. And so I would have liked to appear like the kind of person who was way on the up and up. So I might've like become a bookkeeper, you know, and swindled, a big plumbing firm out of a couple hundred thousand dollars. That that would have been about what I would have gone for. <laughs> I knew I was going to be coming here to Australia, and I have a lot of Australian friends in the States, and I certainly know about, fair bit about your country. But I decided to read a little bit more, and I was reading some articles, I was reading some journals, and, and I was reading some um, economics literature, which is some of my favorite stuff. And it turned out, I did not know this, maybe you didn't even know this, that Australia is the third largest uh, per capita consumer of poultry in the world. Did you know that? So interesting fact. Um, But yeah, um, you're behind uh, the United States and Israel. Israel's number one, US number two, uh, Australia number three. So I began to dig into that a little bit further because that's all I have to do since I don't have a job. (laughs) You were talking to me a little bit early before the tape rolled about an Australian Nobel Prize winning duo who literally turned the world on its head on the on the beautiful topic of stomach ulcers. What yeah. is it you like so much about Barry Marshall and, and Robin Warren? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of things about the story that are to me kind of uh, classic heroic, right? Um, first of all, you know, the mentorship, you know, Barry Marshall was this not very good student looking for some something to do. Uh, and stumbled into this uh, this line of research that was not so high profile or mm. sexy or, or attractive, whatever, and then got really interested in it and then um, realized, you know, he had some ideas, but he also realized that um, 
it was going to be very hard to assemble evidence for that idea uh, from outside. So what am I going to do? I'm going to drink the I'm going to drink the bacteria myself, not tell anyone about it. Because the essence of their thought was, while that while the accepted thought was that stomach ulcers were caused by <clears throat> stress yeah. or not enough sleep or too much spicy food, right? They thought it was overwhelmingly right. a bacteria Bacterial, thing, right? Yeah, which in retrospect makes a ton of sense. Uh, the counter argument against that was, was, but wait a minute, in the environment, in the intestines or in the stomach, the environment is so acidic, how could bacteria possibly survive? So mm-hmm. they proved that A, it did survive, and that B, it wasn't just a remnant of something that had happened. It was actually the causal factor. Now, it, everything about their, I mean, what they did was pure 100% science. That's what science is. Mm-hmm. Science looks at a an idea, uh, challenges it, and then assembles evidence to try to make an argument. But then the science is almost never enough because then there's commerce and there's public opinion. In the commerce pay, in, the, in the case of commerce, uh, they had to fight an industry that was making, it was the first billion dollar drug was the anti-ulcer uh, drugs. And basically they didn't work very well. They alleviated the symptoms, mm. not the root cause. They alleviated the symptoms, but it was a blockbuster. So there you're fighting commerce. And then you're also just fighting uh, kind of the, the wave of public sentiment that says, wait a minute, who are you to say that what we've been saying all along mm. is is wrong? And unfortunately, you see that in the medical realm a lot. You see it in but but in many in many areas of science where what turns out to be now the conventional wisdom was at the time considered totally crazy. Uh, we see this in all levels of astronomy and even chemistry, physics, and so on, none of which I know very much about. But um, it, And so what I take from those um, stories, including the Barry Marshall story, is a lot of inspiration. It means that if you are a right-thinking person and you work hard to try to assemble evidence to prove a theory, even if no one believes you in your lifetime, you may still be really contributing something. And so that I think is an inspiring thought. And uh, I love it's just so beautifully Australian because they get to the point where there's an experiment they want to do, but there's not an ethics board in the world <laughs> that's going to allow you yeah. to get a PhD student. To, so Barry Marshall says, bugger it, I'll drink 600 mils <laughs> of solution with Helicobacter yeah. and let's see what happens. But as he said to me once in an interview, Uh, There used to be, when he was going through med school, 150 pages in the textbooks on ulcers. Mm. There's now two, Mm. and it's mainly photos of his gut. Good, perfect. That's all you need, right? Isn't it wonderful? Another superhero. Sorry, let me just interrupt. The the other thing about Barry Marshall and the story that I liked, I know this was partly a product of the time and partly the product of him growing up in, I guess, rural or fairly, not maybe not rural Australia, but growing up, I guess his dad worked in, uh, mm. I want to say re- um, for refrigeration for a chicken packing mm-hmm. plant or something like that. You know, he was a guy who ended up in med school, not as someone who was a child of professionals, not as someone who didn't know how to work with his hands. And so one of the reasons, one of the reasons he had the abilities to, to build this path of discovery was that he really did know how to knock things together and build things and work with his hands, which I think is a greatly undervalued uh, idea. I mean, obviously, as the world gets more digital and technological, look, 
I'm not a very mechanical person. I'm very grateful that I don't need to know how to adjust a carburetor in order to drive my car. I'm mm-hmm. very grateful. I, I don't need to know anything about the chips in my computer to type on the computer. I'm grateful for that. That said, I think there's a lot of value as the world gets even more uh, digital and less kind of analog or physical. There's always going to be physical processes and it's really important to uh, develop them as well. So I think that, you know, um, I think that most corrections in society tend to be overcorrections. So right now when we're saying everybody should be a STEM uh, student, mm-hmm. science, technology, engineering, and math. Well, actually, we still need a lot of people who understand how roads work, uh, you know, how the body reacts under pressure and stress and so on. So I think um, that's part of our maturing as the the human race is uh, to understand the the relationship between the physical and digital. A couple of questions to wrap up, if that's all right. Uh, later in the year, I'm actually working in an event with your colleague, Stephen Levitt, oh. who's coming to Australia with Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, tell them both hello. And now there's 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 some analyses that put you and, and, and Malcolm in one big sort of happy camp of just telling the world how it is. Do you have any thoughts on Malcolm's work? So I, I like Malcolm a great deal as a human and a writer. He's a, he's a wonderful writer. Um, you know, his books, which I like a lot, um, I, know, I know that certainly within academia, you know, you hear a lot of people say that, well, whenever he writes about something that I know a lot about, I feel he's wrong. He's, he's, so first of all, just calling someone wrong is usually a, a very unnuanced way to evaluate what's often a fairly nuanced um, proclamation. On the other hand, I see, I see why people say that. If Malcolm says, you know, the way, the reason that so-and-so became this kind of person is because of this, that is a causal argument that in the realms that he writes about are often really hard to prove. So I understand there's certainly reason for some skepticism. The thing about Malcolm and us in terms of our books, at least, are, are they're kind of the op, they're kind of the inverse of, of each other in that Malcolm will take one idea, the tipping point, Blink, right, or David and Goliath, whatever, and he will assemble a whole bunch of stories each of which illustrate some facet of that argument so that you've got a collage that asks you to buy the whole argument. We actually do the entire opposite thing, which is say, we don't have any big idea. We don't have any central illustrating theme uh, other than like, you know, incentives are important. Well, that's not very, (laughs) that's not very catchy. That's not the tipping point. That's not blink. And then we assemble a bunch of stories that may not add up to illustrate one theme, but they do reflect what we feel are one at least really small truth. In other words, we may not be able to assemble a collage that adds up to one gigantic truth, but we feel that every story we present, because we explore as best we can the data that are associated with it, the incentives at play, and tell it in a kind of nonfiction, factual narrative way— that, you know, so when we tell the story about drug dealers and why they live with their moms, that's not, you know, a big unifying theory of everything that that you're going to that's going to make you change your life. But, but on that point, on that point, we feel pretty confident that we've told a story that's maybe interesting and definitely true, perhaps not important. But if you're a policymaker or a parent or whatever, and you are looking to harness that insight and adapt it to what you're doing, you can operate with some confidence that the reason that this is happening is because we say so. So so I think that what we actually do are very different. I, I totally understand, however, why people group us together. And look, as, uh, because I like them a great deal, I'm happy to be grouped with them. Mm-hmm. 
So when you're trying to solve a problem, look for the root cause of the problem and not the symptoms. Try to understand the real incentives that people are responding to and try to get data. For the insights that you've given us so far and the insights you will continue to give us, Stephen Dubner, thank you so much. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. Big changes in society start with big changes in the way we think. That's the root of the Freakonomics thought process. It's a refreshing way of tackling problems. Rather than exhorting people to work harder and do more, the Freakonomics approach says think like a child. Admit what you don't know. Ask obvious questions. Try those three things and you just might change the world. Well, thanks to Stephen Dubner and all the guests in our series. You can subscribe via iTunes or your favourite Android podcasting app. I'm Adam Spencer, and this has been Telstra Vantage Behind the Mic.